0: and again, I remind you the church is not a building, it is people. It's God's people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who gather together with one heart, with one accord, desiring that God would be the first thing in their lives. And, and for us, church, there are so many distractions in our world right now, things that could push us away from the centrality of Jesus, The Gospel and the Word. And I want to remind you that though we're in Luke's Gospel, John's Gospel begins in a very, very, very important way. It begins in the beginning. In the beginning. The same in the beginning as Genesis 1-1. John 1-1 begins, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Amen? Amen? And the Word was God. Amen? Verse 14 is very important of that chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the living Word. Amen? We need to remember that because our Constitution is not the living word. What you watch on news is not the living word. What you might hear in some discourse amongst friends is not the living word. And so when Jesus, in John chapter 14, said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and we know him as the word, then the word is truth. Amen? The Bible goes on to say, and every man a liar. The word is truth. Jesus is now going to come into this incredibly sophisticated slander of the religious right. The religious authorities of the day. The scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers of the day, who, by the way, had what we call the Old Testament in their possession. They possessed both the Torah and the Tanakh. They also had the Mishnah Torah, the, the oral traditions. They knew a lot about the Word. And the Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is he not? So, if he is the Word, and he is truth, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if a vast majority of what we know about God is contained within the written Word, then how important is the Word to us this morning? It's the source of life and godliness. The Word's the final authority. I'm not the final authority. No man on this earth is the final authority. The final authority is Jesus himself. But if Jesus faced persecution, if Jesus faced this very sophisticated slander from the religious rulers of his day, I think it's fairly safe to assume that there's going to be persecution even from within the church. And we need to be careful of it. Because there's one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, and one Lord who's Lord over all. Amen? Amen. And that Lord is known as the Word. Would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in Luke 11 and verse 28. And we'll take through verse 54, a study that I've entitled Some Sophisticated... Slander. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus into this world that the world through him could be saved, would be saved. To those who believe, we would be your children. And so, Lord, we pray that there be no division in the church, that we wouldn't buy into these sophisticated slanders, that the church would be united in these days. The world needs to see Christ and him crucified as the solution to mankind's ills. And so, Lord, unite our hearts as we study your word. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus and God's people all set. Amen. So the attack now is going to begin on Jesus as he comes to Jerusalem. He's facing the final week of his life. And the hardness of the hearts of people who should have known the Lord best, who should have understood who he was the most. Those who had the Old Testament, they would have had available to them at that time uh, even a full copy uh, of Isaiah's prophecy. And so they knew Messiah, they knew who he would be, they knew there would be nothing of him that they should dev- desire him. They knew that the chastisement for our peace would be placed upon him. They they knew that he would come on the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah said. They knew who Jesus was. And they're looking right at him, but they don't like what they see. They want a different reality. And Jesus is now going to say, no, I'm not giving you a different reality. I'm going to point you to what I've already told you. I'm going to show you what the Word says about me. It begins in verse 29, really. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, and so Jesus now speaks. Now, I choose to not begin most messages with, this is an evil generation. But Jesus had every right to do that. He he had every reason to do that. Because that generation who should have known the truth, who possessed what we would call the Old Testament, the Bible was paying no attention to what it actually said, to what it actually purported, and to what it actually proposed. They were missing the point. As I've said to you before, if you want to boil God down to a singular thing, John did it well. God is love. Oh, he for sure is righteous. He for sure is holy. He for sure is just. But if God did not so love this world, Jesus would have never come in the first place. Love is the supreme characteristic. You see, they wanted the law to be the supreme characteristic. They wanted... This religion that they had now so invested in, the way that they did church, if you will, to be the preeminent thing. If you're not doing church their way, then you're not doing it the right way. And it is to them that Jesus speaks. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. He says, look, you guys want me to prove who I am. I'm going to prove who I am. Go back and read the book of Jonah. Find out what was said about Jonah. For as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, will be to this generation. Now I want you to notice something. When you read the book of Jonah, you can't help but be struck by the power of the grace of God to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were also known as the Assyrians. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. The Assyrians were the most vile of people and in fact they had subjugated, captured, and destroyed a vast majority of the Jewish people. But God poured out his grace on the Ninevites. He wants to save the Ninevites. And not only did Jonah know this, but Jonah actually made that his excuse. He said, I am not going to go preach the gospel of God's grace to the Ninevites because the moment I tell them the truth about God and tell them that God loves them, they're going to fall on their knees, they're going to repent and get saved. And I don't want that. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what religious division does to the church today. That's what a gracelessness does to the church today. That is what a lack of love does to the church today. That is what the lack of attention to the word of God does to the church today. God loves sinners. He does not want them to stay unsaved sinners, and so he sent Jesus into the world, that the world would be saved. Amen? That is an act of grace and love, not simply his righteousness and sovereignty. The Queen of Sheba so rise up from the south in judgment of the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. He's saying, look, God why don't you listen up a little bit and check me out. As great as Solomon's wisdom was, no one in Scripture can be listed as having a known wisdom greater than Solomon. Solomon was the greatest of all of the wise men of old. And Jesus is saying, because he uses his own title, the Son of Man, the one that Daniel gave him, he says, the Son of Man is standing right in front of you, and he's greater. He's greater. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Can you imagine? You realize what Jesus is saying. Look, they're smarter than you are in this regard. At least they know the grace of God when they see it. You're missing the grace of God. You want to cling to your dead, old religion. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. What's going on in this passage? Jesus is basically saying, look, you already have the revealed word of God. You already have the proof you seek. I've already spoken the truth to you. I reminded you exactly of who I am. I told you these things in the Old Testament. One of those things that's often missed in the writings of Paul, every time the Apostle Paul referred to the Scriptures say, guess which Scriptures he was referring to? It was the Old Testament. It wasn't the New. It didn't have the New. It wasn't even written yet. It was orally understood by some. But the Old Testament tells of the marvelous grace of God and the love of God. The wonder of God's majesty is hidden in his love very often. Anybody else amazed that God would love you? I am. As a pastor, I never cease to be amazed that God loves me. I don't deserve his love, but he loves me nonetheless. I can't earn his love, and he gives it to me as a gift. Church. This is who we are. This is our heritage. And Jesus is speaking against this slander. He's saying, look, you guys are looking in the wrong place. You may be the majority, but you're wrong. You may have the loudest voice, but you're wrong. You're an evil generation. The truth is right there in what we would call the Bible, the Old Testament, and you don't like what it says. You want something else. So Jesus gives them three proofs from the word. The first is easy to see. It's one very convicted prophet. One very convicted prophet. Jonah was actually displeased by the repentance of the Ninevites. Because he didn't want them to get saved. He wanted them to die in their sins. Church, if you ever get to the place where you cannot rejoice when one sinner comes to repentance, you do not possess the heart of God. The heart of God is God rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. One. The most evil person that you could possibly think of came to faith in Christ. Heaven opens up its glory and says, Praise God. That's the heart of God. But what do we see in the church? Well, well, they're not saved. They do church the wrong way. You know, they do communion. They're meeting in a parking lot. And yes, I got that email this week. There's no glory of the Lord in the parking lot. I personally didn't know that. Because the glory of the Lord inhabits the praises of his... People. Amen? We need to get church right. And so he says, look, here's, here's a, this is the problem. Jonah was actually convicted of his own sin, but he didn't want to listen to what the word of the Lord was, which is, I love the Ninevites. Go preach to them so they'll get saved. A second thing we see in this is this conscientiousness of this ruler. It is terrible when the world gets right what the church should know. We are the redeemed of the Lord. We know better. And when the world gets right that Christ is love, and the church gets it wrong and says Christ is judgment, and Christ is sovereignty. And Christ is you better do church this way or you're not doing it right. When the world says those things and, and gets it right and we say something else and get it wrong, we need to go, we got to change the way we think about this. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. This is proof directly from the Queen of Sheba. Solomon became an idolater. Solomon's wisdom faded. They they were leaning on Solomon and Solomon was a broken crutch. We need to lean on the grace of God, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God which the Bible says draws men to repentance. It is not God's majesty, it is not God's holiness that draws men to repentance. It's the potential for forgiveness by that holy God. Amen? That's the truth. None of us are going to get saved if the only thing we do is simply fear God. We have to also know the truth about God, which is that God loves us. What's the point of getting saved if you think the only thing you're going to do is stave off the inevitable? God is holy. And he is righteous. He absolutely is sovereign. But above all those things, he loves you. He loves you. You see, these guys are going, well, you got to get the righteousness part first. If you got to get cleaned up to come to Jesus, nobody's coming to Jesus. Amen? 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 We are are a bunch of redeemed messes. That's what the church is. So there was a proof of that conscientious ruler, but there was also the proof of the converted sinners. And I love this part. Jonah only had to go a single day's journey to, to get to Nineveh, a thoroughly, totally, completely pagan city, by the way. He would have been a beggar in the street, and yet God is saying to him, Just go preach to them, and they're going to get saved. And he's going, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. I mean, there might be a million pagan people there. Could start a revival. When we start looking at the world like we don't want them to get saved, we'll just keep what we have. We'll just hang on to our grace, and we'll protect it. Let me tell you something. God does not need your help to protect the gospel. He doesn't. He's quite capable of doing it himself. So why does he give us the opportunity to be engaged in gospel ministry? Because he loves us. He loves us. If the church is responsible for protecting God, then who's the superior? God is the one who is able That's why he says, Jonah, you just go preach to them. Leave the results in my hands. You go tell them about my love. I listen to this and I think of some of the things going on in our nation right now. The church is imploding. It's feeding on itself. It's complaining and whining and groaning and talking and backbiting and backstabbing. Trying to see who can get on Fox News the most times in one week to figure out who's got the latest word from the Lord. I already have the word of the Lord right here. This part I need. This is what I need right here. This is the part that's true. What I don't need is a bunch of everybody else's opinions. And that's basically what Jesus is saying saying, Look, I already gave you the word, do that. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Don't deceive yourself. You're not immune to it. You are supposed to be an emissary of it. So now they're going to get a sermon instead of a sign. They ask for a sign. He's going to give them a sermon. I love this. As a pastor, I love this. It's like when people say, well, I don't really like what you just said, Pastor Jeff. I usually will figure out another way to give them some other sermon. I'm not saying I'm like Jesus in that regard, but I am saying that's what he did's Good model to follow. Verse 33: No one, when he's lit a lamp, who was Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. He was the lamp, but men love darkness rather than the light. So what did they do? They said, "Ah, well, we're not going to have him shine a light on us, so we're going to go the other direction." No one, when he's little, lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket. That's the reason he could have added there, I'm here in Jerusalem. I'm not going to be the light of the world and not come to the one place that needs it the most. Why? But you put it on a lampstand that those who come might see the light. For the lamp of the body is the eye, and therefore when the eye is good, so also the whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, When your lens is foggy, when you cloud things over with something other than the truth, when your biblical lens gets clouded with other things, your body is full of darkness. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, this is about you listening, seeing, hearing the word, putting the word in a superior place. And when you do that, you have the truth coming into your life. But if you block it off with something else you block it off with politics. You block it off with materialism. You you block it off with your sexuality. You, You block it off with alcohol and drugs, you block it off with something, then you do not get the light into your life and the light therefore cannot come out of your life. Do you understand? Why is that important? Because the enemy is trying to put things in front of you that blocks out the light trying to divide the church, cause the church, in that sense, to get focused on something other than the word of God. The truth. Let's be about this group, or that group, or this problem, or that problem, or this political party, or that political party. The enemy is saying, look, let's blind the people by putting something between them and God. So important, church. Church that we do not blind ourselves. Those blindnesses can be in a lot of ways and manifest themselves in ways that sometimes are subtle. It can be in your preconceptions. It can be in your presuppositions. They can be in your predetermined outcome. Notice the prefix pre. That means before, amen? When you put anything before Christ, you have partially blinded yourself. Now I hope there's no one here that has currently cataracts, but if you happen to have suffered through cataracts, You know what that is. That is a fogging over of the lens of your iris. It it becomes less than clear. The result is, everything is foggy. Amen? In much the same way, a person who is not biblically astute, paying attention to the Word of God, their life governed by preconceptions, their life governed by presumptions, their life governed by predetermined outcomes, that person has spiritual cataracts. They don't see correctly. They see with a fog over their vision. They don't have the real light. And so the Lord is going to highlight this for us. He said, look, you you have to turn on the lamp. You have to turn on the light. And therefore, take heed that the light, verse 35, which is in you is not darkness. Isn't that weird? Take heed that the light that is in you is not darkness. In other words, if you have blinded yourself, then what you have inside is not actually the light, it's darkness. That's a warning to the church. That's a warning to us. If then your whole body, verse 36, is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, and when it is bright and shining, the lamp gives you light. Jesus is differentiating between walking in the truth and walking in darkness. Walking in the word and walking in the world. And church... We need to be people of the word at this time, not people of the world at this time. Frankly, as I read, as people email me, as people try and get me involved in all kinds of stuff, I have one question. Does it honor the Lord's word? And if it doesn't, I don't want any part of it. Because it's not going to be helpful. And it might be hurtful. Jesus just simply says, look, turn on the light in your life. Where do we get that? Our Bibles. Now prayerfully, I'm doing nothing to shame the Lord. I'm simply transferring in a way that you might understand the word of God. But it is the word of God that is truth. Sometimes people will say, well, you said this in a message really ministered to me. I, I, I usually say, well, I'm just glad I didn't mess it up. I'm glad I didn't say something that, that hindered you from walking in the light. Because God's truth is what sustains us in these times. The truth of his word. Notice the slander that comes now from the religious right. And I'm not trying to make a direct equivalence here. But these guys were the most legalistic, the most authoritarian, the ones who claimed to have the longest history, the ones who'd been in their church building the longest, the ones who had the largest following. They had all the podcasts. They got all the TV time. They had tape packs and CDs and books galore. These were the guys who were the big mouths of the day. These are the ones who had the ear of the public. And Jesus now speaks to them. And that's not meant to call out anyone. It's simply to say the problem then was people who thought they knew more than God. People who declared to get a special revelation that the word specifically said you didn't get. Because it said something else. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him, verse 37, to dine with him. And so he went and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled. Check this out. Light of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, comes and sits down, and the first thing that comes into this guy's mind is, well, you didn't sit down right. And he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. <gasps> Now, if you hold that up as your standard, every teenager's going to hell. (laughs) If they're male. Right? This is what religion does. It holds up some unimportant thing and says you have to do it this way, and if you don't do it this way, then you're not doing it right, and therefore, we do not have to listen to a word that comes out of you, even if 100% of what you say is true. Church. Notice how Jesus responds. And the Lord says to him, verse 39, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean. I love this. This is classic Jesus right here. See, man, when I come to your house and I grab a cup, it's like, whoa, that, that right there is clean. This is awesome. Use what, that simple green, OxyClean, what would you use on that? Like, you probably use that super jet dry stuff in your dishwasher, right? It's like, woo! Cup of glory right here. But your inward part, I love this. He's basically saying, who cares? But your inward part is full of greed and wickedness, foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He switches it on him. He says, look, this is not about your clean cups. This is not about how you do church. It's not whether you own your own personal mikveh in your yard. This this isn't you going every single time. And the crazy thing is all of these things, these rituals, were designed by God to point people to Jesus, okay? Okay? So when the Jewish person, especially the priest, would wash his hands, he'd go into a basin and he would wash his hands and he would raise his hands to the Lord so that the water would drip off of his elbows and that uncleanness would be gone. He says, you're so worried about the way you wash that you forget what you're washing. And nothing can wash away the sin of a man except the blood of Jesus. And so they're all worried about how they do it. What church looks like. But rather give alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. In other words, when your heart is right, everything else follows along. But if your heart is wrong, nothing else matters. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe. I love this. Any of you have an herb garden? We have an herb garden in our house. We've got, you know, we've, got all kinds of, we've got basil and mint and all kinds of stuff out there. I have never, not once, have I gone out in that herb garden and picked a tenth of everything that's out there and brought it in and dropped it in the tithe box. You know that? <laughs> that's what Jesus is saying. You guys go out in your garden. You pull up a tithe of everything. You don't want to miss anything because you've got to keep the law straight. And you drop that into the tithe bag. Oh, you tithe on mint and rue and all manner of herbs. But you pass by the justice, underline this, and the love of God. That's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm not really concerned about your tithe. I'm concerned about your heart. Do you love the way I love? And those you ought to have done, leaving the others, notice what he says, undone. Don't worry about the other stuff. The other stuff will come when the inside's right, the outside will follow. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. Oh, hi, Holy One! You put on your name badge, the Most Holy Right Reverend. You know, sometimes I get things in the mail and they obviously have no idea who I am because it says, you know, Most Right Reverend, Holy... Uh, You know, there's all kinds of accolades on there, and then it has my name, and I think, this this is somebody else's mail. (laughs) Church, the only holiness that's in me is the holiness of Christ in me. Amen? Amen? Amen. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Apart from that, there is no holiness. It's His holiness. It's not mine. Other than that, I am a whitewashed sepulcher. I am a cup that looks good, but full of dead men's bones and junk. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Notice he uses the word hypocrites, Hypocrite. Actor. For you're like graves which are not seen. In Jewish culture, it was a crime to not mark a grave because someone might inadvertently stumble onto that grave and become unclean and not know it. Now imagine this. You're walking through a field. <laughs> I don't know what that was, no idea. You get to the temple, they expected you to drop dead from being unclean because you stepped on a grave you didn't see. How is Anybody thinking, how is that fair of God to hold you to that, that standard? If you didn't see the grave, how could you be held to the fact that you stepped on a dead person's grave and thereby were ceremonially unclean and you didn't get cleaned and you went in and tried to worship God and all of a sudden, you're dead. Jesus said, and men who walk over them are not aware of them. He says, you're just like that. You're like trying to hold somebody to a standard that they can't keep and not telling them how to keep it. It's the law without grace it's God's word without love. You see, they just simply criticized his manners. They, they looked at the trivialities of what were going on and said, well, we, at least we keep all the trivial things that don't matter, correct? So Jesus basically speaks to them about their motivation. You saying, what's motivating you to do these things? Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, I don't want to frighten anybody here but Jesus knows why you do what you do. You know that? He's not impressed by our stuff. You know, we might fool people, but we never fool God. We don't fool Him. He knows why you do everything. And that's what He's concerned with. You know, God would rather that that you be honest with Him then pretend to be something. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Just be who you are. He's going to deal with that more in our next message. You see, what use is being scrupulous over tithing when you neglect the law itself? Jesus said, in this is the law and the prophets completed that you love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Amen? You want to know what the law actually is? It's love God, love your neighbor. That's a condensation of it. But if you're just good at tithing, you can hate your neighbor. You can be jealous of your neighbor, envious of your neighbor, covetous of your neighbor. They were actors. That's what Jesus is basically saying. He says, woe to you next who are false teachers. Notice how he continues this. They were essentially living tombs. But there were false teachers. When one of the lawyers answered him and said, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Duh! (laughs) These guys are pretty bright, right? Are you saying we're bad? Well, kind of trying to get you to think a little bit. A lot of what the Bible says is for that reason. It's to try and get you to turn inward and look at your own heart. Ask yourself the question before you point your finger at someone else. And he said, woe to you who also are lawyers. And this is not a condemnation of those who in our midst are lawyers or attorneys. This is one of the problems that the Jewish people faced because they had mixed both their civil government and the church. And so the lawyers in the church, those who sat in the Sanhedrin, we were also the lawyers for the community. And so those two things were blended. And so if you came and you had a problem, someone's goat ran over your goat, and there was a goat accident in the street, and you had a dead goat and a live goat, they were the ones who would solve that. He says, woe to you lawyers, for you load men with burdens that are hard to bear when you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, you put stuff on other people that you yourself do not and cannot do. That's what legalists do, folks. That's what legalists do. They put burdens on other people, they hold up standards that no one can keep, themselves included, and then they go, well, see, I'm better than you. Look, let's just get over it right now. Every one of you is better than me. Do you feel good now? (laughs) Can you understand why I just said that? Because at some level, you're probably better at something than I am. And I might be better than you. It's not about us being better than each other. Unless you are better than the king of heaven, you're in trouble. And I'm not better than him. I am never gonna be better than him and that's the one to whom I have to compare myself. When I do that, guess what happens? I realize he sent Jesus into the world that I might be saved because he loves me. Church, these lessons are so timely in our day. Woe to you, for you build tombs, verse 47, of the prophets and of your fathers who killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve of the deeds of your fathers, for indeed, they killed them. And you build their tombs. And therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, And some will say to them, they will kill and persecute them, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. He's saying, look, you you have a central problem here. I've been speaking to you since day one, and you're not listening. From Abel to Zacharias. Abel was the first martyr. Zacharias was the last martyr. Killed by King Joash. He said, and in between, I sent you prophets continually. But you didn't listen. The blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers. For you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves. And those who were entering, you hindered them. You see, all the laws that they had concocted, everything that they tried to get other people to do was actually keeping people from seeing the love of God. It had become so complex, so impossible to be Jewish, that between the Mishnah Torah, the Tanakh itself, the Torah itself, but by the time everyone looked at everything, there was no possible way anyone was keeping all that stuff. And so they began to do workarounds. In engineering, building trades, we we work through problems that don't fit a specific set of guidelines. That's what the Sadducees and the Pharisees did. Well, we can't keep that, so we'll do something else different ourselves because we know we can't keep that, but you need to. Church, Jesus says some things here that are kind of hard to hear. They're murderers of the prophets. You're evil, you're wicked. The reason he says that is that's how much Jesus hates legalism. That's how much Jesus can't stand gracelessness. That's how much Jesus hates an unloving church a church that's all about rules and has very little room for God's grace. We need to not be that church. We need to be the church that loves unconditionally, just as God loves unconditionally. Let God sort out the details in people's lives. My job is to teach the truth. But once that's done, once someone knows the truth, the Holy Spirit is absolutely able to convict of sin and righteousness. What other people need to do and change, that's between them and God. What church looks like, this is a magnificent picture of the body of Christ right here in this parking lot. God's people gathered in God's name doing God's will, studying God's word for God's purposes. That's the church. Amen? But I want you to see the final thing here as we close. And this is really important. Because they're trying to lay a trap. Verse 53. And as he said these things, that he would be Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees began to first assail him vehemently. Cross-examine him about many things. If you want to know how to spot a legalist, you're getting four points right here. Lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something that he might say, that they might accuse him. When someone is graceless... When someone lacks the love of God, this is how they work. This is the warfare of the legalist and the unbeliever. Constantly arguing, constantly bickering, constantly cross-examining, constantly lying in wait, constantly seeking to catch somebody in something... And the ultimate end is that he might say, well, see, they don't do it right. That's what these guys were saying about Jesus. And I pray that is not a single person that's gathered here today. Because that accomplishes nothing for the kingdom. The bickering, the arguing, the finger-pointing, the name-calling, the assailing of other people's characters, the castigation of various groups and people claiming that you have the right and they don't does exactly the same thing to the church today. It doesn't help the king, and it does not advance the kingdom. So church, let's be the church that Jesus points to. Let's be the church that loves unconditionally, recognizing that mankind is a mess and needs that love, that the great equalizer in all things is the one true king, and that people need the grace of God in their life. They do not need another source of condemnation because that is from the enemy. What they need, maybe some conviction. But if you're bringing true conviction, it's gonna be brought by the Holy Spirit that's gonna always leave a way out. That way is repentance and forgiveness and a blessed state of restoration. And so church, let's not engage in sophisticated slander. Let's engage in loving as Jesus loves us. Amen? Amen. would you stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're watching online, we have pastors online right now that can pray with you, lead you in understanding the true gospel. Uh, We have teams at the exits that are able to do that here. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and that journey away from that legalism and the the bickering and the infighting can begin today for you. Let's not be a part of it. Let's be a part of his love. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for these amazing saints that have gathered in this heat, Lord, to study your word and to know you better. And we pray, God, if there's something I said and it's, oh God, it wasn't from you, just strike it from their memory, Lord. We thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you for your love, which is real. And pray if there's anyone gathered here today that does not know you, that before they leave these grounds, they would invite you, Jesus, into their life, that they would... Just simply confess their sin, that they would cry out to you for forgiveness. We know you'll give it. We ask you will give us that faith to believe. And so, Lord, help us to be a church that loves, a church that's filled with light, a church that doesn't slander, a church that unifies. Let us be your church. In Jesus' name. Amen.